John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. You have accessed entry 522.MT0634, certificate number 46598, Genoan Insurance. I sell insurance. What a shock. Do you have life insurance? Because if you do, you could always use a little more. Am I right or am I right or am I right? Right, right, right. I'm genuinely interested. <laughs> I'm guessing that you, uh, as a as a modern... American person have lots of insurance policies on things. It seems like a grown-up should. Like you should have a drawer of your desk full of your various policies. Yeah, right. That are all on pieces of paper that look like the bill from I Am a Bill in, in Schoolhouse Rock. <laughs> Some kinds of seals. <laughs> have a seal with a little ribbon on it. Silver stickers. Uh, I you, have. You, you have to have car insurance. I do have car insurance. You have to have house insurance. You have to have health insurance. Right. Under the uh, Affordable Care Act, because our healthcare system is still a disaster. That's true. Um, Although futurelings right now are living in a world where Band-Aids are free, in our world, Band-Aids cost $1,000. That's right. Isn't that amazing? $1,000 per Band-Aid. Yeah. Thank God we only have to pay a copay of $500. People just skin their knees and then they just bleed out because they can't afford Uh a Band-Aid and that's why Bernie's going to win. So you got car, house, and health insurance. (laughs) What else is there? I do have life insurance. Okay. I have a life insurance policy. That's interesting. Uh Uh-huh. That's definitely like a grown-up thing. I don't have a life insurance policy because I feel like if I died, it would only benefit all the people around me. That's That's how yours would work. Mm-hmm. They would collect money from your next of kin if you died because they've got so much more disposable income now. <laughs> um, uh, what other kinds of insurance are there? Well, what are the what are the areas? I've actually taken out one of those. You know how celebrities get like Jimmy Page got his fingers insured. Oh, or yeah. Sid Charisse got, got your, her, like, your button finger insured. Got my insured? buzzer thumb insured, yes. Is that right? If anything were to happen to my right thumb, like if it went through a combine, uh the the amalgamated uh, mutual company of Indiana would have to pay me uh, ten million simoleons. Here's a here's a little Jeopardy uh, query: If you had to do the buzzer with your left hand, how much would that affect your gameplay? Oh, I'm left-handed. I would be so much better. Wait a minute, you're left-handed? Yeah, I've been well, handicapping myself. Have I been sitting here across from you this whole time, and you've been writing with your left hand, and I didn't notice it? Notice what a freak show is going on Weird. right in front of you. My mom is left-handed. It's not that weird. It's got to be something it's a like little weird. Ten to fifteen percent of Americans. So if your if your left hand was chopped off, uh, 
and you had to click the buzzer with your right hand, how much would that affect your your uh, reflex. That's what I'm telling you. I do, in fact, click the buzzer with my right hand. Oh, my God. I, this story just gets worse and worse. I use my offhand to buzz. Why? To, to try to give the other fella a chance. You're the worst. No, that is not true. I um, Are you ambidextrous? Many left-handed people are ambidextrous to some degree, and I'm not sure whether that's just because of how brain chemistry works or because if you grew up in a right-handed world, you have to assimilate mm-hmm. in a way that right-handed people do not. Mm-hmm. You're code switching? For, yeah, for, for, for your benefit, With John. your hand, yeah. <laughs> I'm thumb switching. Mm -hmm. I believe, in my case, I know that many of the tasks I do right-handed, it's just because I learned that way from a right-handed person. Oh, I For example, I throw a Frisbee right-handed because that's how my dad showed me. That's because God invented the Frisbee to be thrown right-handed. Right. We could not afford a left-handed Frisbee (laughs) because those orthopedic left-handed Frisbees cost $1,000. Do you use scissors with your left or right-hand scissors? I use right-handed scissors, again, because they never had the lefty one in the... Like, the school never had enough of the lefty kind. Right. And computer mouse, I learned to do right-handed because if you grew up in a right-handed home, you can't just keep swapping. I grew up in the age of the corded mouse. Right. So you just can't keep swapping to the other side of the, the keyboard. The age of the corded mouse, one of the great, the all-time great novels of our generation. My favorite Death Cab for Cutie song. Uh, that's interesting. You know, Jason Finn, the drummer of the Presidents of the USA, plays on a right-handed kit, but he plays open-handed rather than cross, you know, like a typical drummer will play the right. uh, hi-hat across the snare. With, his, with hand. his right hand. And Jason plays open because he's left-handed. Uh, there was, uh, who's the guitar? Did Jimi Hendrix play a right-handed guitar just strung backwards, I upside think? Upside down. He played it upside, uh, played upside down. down. Right, exactly. And Kurt Cobain did that, too. Um, so you got to assimilate because that's what the man wants you yeah. to do. And so because I, because I kind of got used to clicking left-handed and playing video games, sorry, right-handed, and playing video games right-handed, I click on Jeopardy. Interesting. Right-handed. Huh. But that does not answer the question about another, what kind of insurance an- I have. Another, another thing that makes you a special flower. A, stu- a super freak show. Well, when you think about it, what are the things where you take on risk and you would like to uh, mitigate that risk somewhat, share that risk among other people? Ultimately, hmm. insurance you know, insurance is, um, is a thing that evolved over time because people wanted – people felt like – they were taking risks that if they lost, if they lost the gamble, if the ship sunk, they were busted and they wanted to share that risk among a a larger pool of people. You know, I do this when I go out to eat. I have a hard time with a big menu trying to narrow down. What what do I actually want? I kind of get paralysis of choice. So often I will go in with some people at the table. I'll say, Hey, uh, I'm not sure if I should get the omelet or the pancakes. What if I get the omelet and you get the pancakes and then we can split them? Oh, and the other person's like, I wasn't, I didn't want an omelet or a pancake. And you're like, no. The other person's like, I'm not even at your table, sir. <laughs> you're uh, going to get the pancakes. What are you doing? <laughs> so yeah, I, I feel like I do things like that to mitigate risk. risk. We do it all the time. I do it in restaurants too, except in the choosing of restaurants. Where should we go to eat? Oh, I don't know. We could go to Thai food or, or uh, French food. And I do that as a way of like, you know, of removing some of the risk of having chosen the restaurant and it turns out the restaurant is bad. My wife and I are both so accommodating that we have worked out a system where by picking a restaurant, one of us has to narrow down, one of us narrows down from infinity restaurants to say three to five and the other person narrows down to one. Oh, narrows it down to one. How is that different from choosing? The other person chooses from the list of three to five. I see. 
That's not bad. I think we can all agree that one restaurants would be a narrower selection than three <laughs> to five. Would. I mean, I was thinking that you that then the next person had to narrow it down to two, and then you would cast lots. We just pick a very narrow restaurant, one of those Seattle diners that's kind of boxcar style. <laughs> uh, it's it's always intriguing to me how um, how banking and insurance arise out of out of a kind of natural process of expanding the scope of trade and expanding the, um, you know, the desire to make a profit. and Because you just don't need it if you're growing your own supply. If, if you, you if, grow if your own. Growing my own <laughs> sorghum. You know, if you're just sitting in your thatched cottage eating nothing but the sorghum and the millet that you brought in last harvest. Right. What do you need insurance for? But even if you're trading directly with someone, here's some sorghum, can I have some of your millet? Uh, there's not a ton of risk there. There is a there exactly. is a risk that someone's going to give you some some subpar some bad millet. Yeah, bad millet. You're gonna get you're gonna get written about for your for your Persian exploits for for selling bad metal. You're gonna get yeah, bad ingots. Yeah, but the risk is you know the risk is fairly personal at at, uh, at, at those early levels. But as trade expands, and you know, particularly when you or trading with, uh, or you're trading over long distances, or where you're trading with uh, people you don't know, or or you're just gonna have to send a bunch of gold out on a camel and hope that cardamom comes back. That's right. There's there's a there there ends up being a lot of risk, and depending on how much you have invested in any one given transaction, you you every every time you take the risk of being wiped out or ruined. And to uh, be, I guess, to be fair, that was true in an agrarian life as well, one bad weather season or whatever. But in that, in that case, you had a, a solution. You would just die. You would die. All those people would just die if, the, right. if the sorghum didn't come in. But the earliest forms of insurance were, um, I think, f- insurance that we could all kind of recognize. And we, we, you and I described it uh, uh, a little bit with the restaurant thing. But, you know, the, the first form of insurance is sort of paying fealty to your king by bringing him a sacrificial lamb. You know, you're insuring yourself against trouble in the future by, uh, you know, by making yourself a friend of the court or by uh, saying a good word about your neighbor. All of these are, are in, in, in different ways used as insurance against future risk. I mean, by that definition, any kind of religious belief is insurance as well. That's right. right? Yeah. I've, I've got my king. I think to this day, uh, a common kind of Christian joke is to refer to uh, to good behavior, the good, the good Christian life as fire insurance. Fire insurance. Oh, Look at that. Because your Jewish neighbor is going to be burning. Lol. Uh, but also, uh, you know... Uh, Concepts of of uh, like shared aid within a within a community. If one person's house burns down, mm. it is uh, it behooves the whole village to chip in to build a, to rebuild a house for your neighbor, rather than to let you know that neighbor's house burn down and everybody closes their door and pulls the shades down. Uh, yeah, people back then had no problem realizing that uh, there's a communitarian. So there's a strength that will only come from looking out. For each other. Right. Whereas today, a lot of people are like, well, why should I get health insurance? I'm not sick. Why should I pay for her health insurance? Well, because if she doesn't, she's going to start breathing coronavirus on you, sir. That's right. Right. Or she's going to put up put up a tent in your yard and start uh, digging through your trash, which yeah. is, you know, it's a lot easier just to 
help your neighbor. But then again, who cares? It's all, <laughs> it's all going to hell. <laughs> is that your rebuttal? Is that your rebuttal to Christianity? Yeah, who cares? Help, John, help your neighbor. But yeah, but on the other hand, eh, yeah, what a hassle. Ken, I know that Mindy is a great cook, but do you guys eat out a lot uh, under normal circumstances? Yeah, we usually go out on weekends. And I got to say, lately, we've been eating more takeout than usual because, you know, small businesses need our support now more than ever. And a lot of them are just getting by on on carryout. Yeah, we were a, a very restaurant eat-out-based family culture here at uh, at our house. We, we like to go out and... and um, eat at our favorite restaurants, but lately that has been uh, nigh on impossible and we've been ordering food into the house. And what do you think? Well, it's been kind of great. We've been using Postmates and um, and they bring the food right to the door and lately the, the delivery driver just sort of sets the food there at the at the front door and waves via con Dios. And then we, um, we're both supporting our favorite restaurants and also getting uh, delicious food that we don't have to think about. Postmates can deliver your burgers and your sushi, but they also do grocery delivery. They can deliver from anywhere. Convenience stores, you can get clothing. Right. It's, it's a one-stop shopping, and the stop is your house. I was sick once, and they got us uh, uh, some Gatorade and some stuff from the drugstore, some you know Band-Aids and flu medicine. It was great. <laughs> yeah, you've told the story before, and it's always Band-Aids, that, fa- <laughs> that famous, famous flu essential. Uh, look, I cut my finger the other day and, and had to use several Band-Aids. Uh, How, you do you, what was the last thing that you got through Postmates? You know, we actually ordered, I love the the uh, Blatt bacon, lettuce, and avocado and tomato sandwich from before, but this time I ordered that in conjunction with a thing of uh, macaroni and cheese yes. with bacon and tomato on it. Ooh, fancy. It was really good. Fancy pants. It was really good. Well, for a limited time, Postmates is giving our listeners $100 of free delivery credit Ooh. for your first seven days of uh, signing up for Postmates. To start your free deliveries, download the app and use the code Omnibus. That's code Omnibus. You get $100 of free delivery credit, and there's no minimum purchase. That'll last for your full first seven days after you download the app. Anything you need, anytime you need it, Postmate it. As things get more sophisticated, though, it's, it's, um, it's, you, you end up not feeling like the people that live four blocks away are your neighbors, or at least not so much that you're going to help rebuild their barn after it burns. And it's somewhat uh, at the foundation of the um, the rise of guilds and churches and uh, uh, community organizations that bind people together. A lot of those were uh, – they originally started as forms of either mutual aid or shared risk. When it uh, becomes harder to see the direct – the direct survival connection between groups of people. Right. Let's, you start to formalize it. You identify as a Mason, for instance, you know, the other people that, that share your trade or you, you know, you join, um, well, any, any church really is, is, uh, it, part of the, part of the idea of a church is that you have shared values and right. then you come to one another's aid. And that is a, that is an organic, an organic form of insurance, uh, that isn't, mercantile necessarily, but it is guarding against the the tremendous risk that comes into any human being. The vicissitudes of life, just being born. The vicissitudes of life, thank you. Uh, But as early as the Code of Hammurabi, uh, there started to be a kind of institutionalized idea, uh, and insurance and 
banking or money lending go sort of hand in hand. And as the one, uh, you know, banking and, and loaning money are, are another thing that uh, are kind of nascent in any exchange, but as, as money becomes real, as, um, as money becomes representative of material wealth, mm-hmm. then there's almost immediately an, an instinct or a desire, a, a market for, uh, for money being loaned. But banks per se didn't exist for, uh, didn't really formally exist until the Middle Ages. Most money lending was part of a capitalist exchange. Someone would say, I want to take this millet and put it on a boat and take it to sell it over here. And someone else would say, I'll pay you, you know, I'll, I'll enter into a partnership with you. Basically I'll put up the money and then directly reap a percentage of the profits from your in millet, probably in, in millet or in whatever you're trading in frankincense or whatever you're trading that millet for. And a lot of the early prohibitions on usury uh, that actually kind of are throughout the Abrahamic religions um, come as a result of uh, of a, uh, some discomfort at people profiteering off of one another, uh, taking advantage of their misfortunes. You know, the, the, the Torah pretty clearly says, like, you cannot charge interest on loans to other Jews, but you're somewhat obligated to charge interest on loans to people that aren't Jews. And then in the Quran, there's a retributive passage that says, since the Jews are loaning or <laughs> are charging interest a. on us, you know, we're, we're going to prohibit uh, charging interest on anyone except, you know, except it doesn't, it, we can do it to the Jews. The Quran does not say that you can charge interest to Jews. But, but the definition of what constitutes usury, which is loaning money in exchange for a percentage fee. Interest, essentially. Interest. As opposed to investing money in a proposition and then reaping a profit, um, you know that distinction is sort of at the core of where the idea of insurance comes from. It's a weird distinction. Does it seem uncharitable that you would profit from someone else's misfortune? Is that the idea? Well, profiting I, off someone else's fortune is good. They're going to have something to share. I think that the you know the idea what usury is is just profiting off of. Period. The use of your money. But don't where, don't where, we need that? Well, now we do. I mean, now our whole our whole economic system and political system is is uh, piled up on these um, these pilings of interest loans. I, I'm just trying to. I'm wondering what the original objection would have been. Is it the, is it a rich get richer problem? Why should somebody with money have a way to get more without doing much? Well, I think it is the I think it is a moral objection to the idea that you are not uh you're really not risking anything but money. Hmm. And, um, and not doing any work. You're not doing any work, right? It's the money that's doing the work and you are just sort of sitting on top of your pile of money whereas So it's a corrective to our problem our problem with billionaire capitalism today. Right. We should go back to uh, the Commenda contract which was so so this actually came up uh, it, during the medieval period that our story kind of uh, really takes shape. Um, it was uh, Pope Gregory the Nine actually prohibited 
you know, issued a kind of edict against uh, against insurance for money, and uh, and developed what's called the commenda contract, which was a form of again insisting that if you were going to invest money and charge interest, that in a in a financial proposition mm-hmm. that you needed to be a, that you needed to do so as a owner the capitalist could um the capitalist could loan money to a venture but the capitalist needed to bear the risk also by being you know a uh, like a co a co-conspirator and that essentially bans insurance right because if you if you have insurance or is that right or, or or does it lead to the insurance industry well so the era uh, after the Crusades, which is a, a period that we've discussed quite extensively on this show, one of the side effects of the Crusades was that all of that energy that Europe was pouring into, you know, waging these wars in the Levant and in the East, mm-hmm. um, what it did was open up tremendous trade routes to the to and from the Levant and 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 the East. It um, although. Byzantium was, uh, you know, kind of degraded by the Crusades. It did. We did now have tremendous shipping uh, resources. Like paths were laid, relationships were built, and so in the in the period after the Crusades, the 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 world of trade really expanded, and it was based. Um, it was based largely out of northern Italy. The financial world was concentrated in Florence and Genoa and or Genoa Venice and Venice and, yeah. because these were the these were the parts of the world that uh, well, I mean a lot of the shipping they had they were seafaring people they were seafaring peoples but also these were regions where um, the the sort of town fair was a gathering place for people for these seafaring merchants to come exchange goods and services like that there there were institutions in medieval europe that really promoted the idea of capitalist exchange and one of them was the tradition of a kind of uh, market town that those naturally um what, what had formerly been kind of regional little markets sort of naturally facilitated bigger marketplaces as more goods were coming in from farther away. Sure. It's the, it's the new, the new mall or the Walmart coming in and shutting down the little, the little tiny mom and pop stalls. And, and those larger shipping interests and, and as trade expanded and, and um, involved long sea voyages and in particular transactions with people far, far away with, in languages you don't understand for goods, you kind of maybe don't even really grok um the risk became exponentially higher right if you put all of your money into some into a shipment of amber and set it off on a boat to alexandria the opportunity for that boat to disappear either by sinking or through piracy, piracy. or yeah. the captain just decides he's going to turn. He's into amber now. Yeah. And, and sail to, uh, to Marrakesh, uh, rather than the continue on his way. So, so 
although the the opportunity for for amazing trade fortunes um you know expanded there was also so much more risk and the need to mitigate that risk um ameliorate it start uh, basically resulted in de- the devising of schemes for shared risk and what that often meant was that different merchants would i mean the the easiest one was to split up your shipment of amber across four ships and say i'm sending four ships to alexandria and at least two of them hopefully will make it if all four do it's a windfall but then the the reverse engineering of that is to to split up the ownership of one ship among four people sure it makes sense. What's going to be in the other three quarters of the other ship? Right. Let's let's make this more efficient. But also then, once you start to do that, then you, you enter into a relationship where there are five merchants and they have five ships and each one is sort of, you know, spreading their goods around. You know, the, these syndicates start to uh, start to blur because what they're doing is they're lending money so it's a it's a proto sort of banking but they're also insuring their investments against losses so it's a kind of proto insurance and the relationship between banking and insurance even now is um uncomfortably close sometimes and right now there's no there's no central broker saying Hey, uh, I want to match up risk takers with uh, investors and take a cut. Like right now, it's just symmetry between people. But I'm sure that happens very soon. It does. You're going to want to outsource it to some guy who's like, "Oh, I know who who wants some amber." Yeah, and in and in Florence, in particular, right there, sort of on the Ponte Vecchio, right right in the center uh, of what we think of as medieval Florence, there becomes a kind of marketplace and originally a street market of people who are trying to, you know, or who are funding expeditions and, and offering, um, uh, in exchange for, you know, a premium of, uh, of ownership, you know, you, you could get an investment to, to go off on an adventure and pretty quickly, Merchants realize that they don't, uh, up until this point, you know, if you sent a ship out with a load of grain, presumably you went with the ship. You were the merchant. You went and made the trade. Oh, right. But it was- uh, You don't have an office. Right. It was It was during this period that merchants started to realize that they could send ships out with contracted agents and- The uh, white collar job is invented. <laughs> uh-huh. And pretty soon they're running, you know, they are, they're running an office, they're running a shipping company. I'll sit in the second story room with a view of the Arno. And people realized also, you know, rather than take a shipment of grain, if I just took a shipment of seeds and, uh, you know, and went to a far off place and started a seed brokerage or started, you know, or planted the seeds and, uh. And then, you know, you're entering into... Colonialism is created, right, basically. Right, a, a much larger capitalist enterprise. Yeah. Um, but that that notion started to take a sort of formal shape. The first 
contract, the first actual like insurance contract that we have that we can refer to, there's some within the within the community of of insurance historians. Of insurance historians. There's yeah, some uh, argument. Can we, you introduce me to these guys sometime? I mean, <laughs> they must be a, a hoot. For a long time, uh, insurance historians all agreed that the first, you know, the first insurance contract was written in Genoa in 1347. Uh, there are some um, revanchists who. Uh, I mean, you can always find the. <laughs> The the precursor, yeah, right? who claimed that it was written in Pisa in 1343. Everybody so wants the milestone. Yeah. So basically you get people fighting over, well, what counts as a 1347. So there is still an Ur document remaining. Yeah, and and this was, a, this was an incredibly, I mean, well, we call it the Renaissance or the Proto-Renaissance, but what was happening was in opening up all those um, – in opening up all those markets in the in Asia Minor, there was also all this discovery of the the great wealth of antiquity, all of the books that were and the astronomy that was uh, preserved by the Arabs and the you know the wealth of Greek art. It's funny how that becomes a side effect to somebody trying to make a buck on on myrrh, right? But it but it but it increased the um, it just increased the kind of uh, the energy that was located, not just in northern Italy, but in the whole that whole world of exchange. Like, wow, right? It's uh, you know, I sent out a bunch of grain, but the guy came back with all these fantastic statues that he stole from some pit. It starts to align wealth with um, intellectual sophistication. You know, you you show that you have a certain place in the community by virtue of the nice art you have, the scientific instruments you own. Um, Before, I'm I'm guessing there was not such an alignment between who had the money, which would just be some political class, and who had the scientific knowledge, which would just be a bunch of weirdos looking at the shadows of sticks out in the desert. Yeah, all of the, I mean, knowledge was the the province of the priests, right? And they were kind of, they they were mocked for their their uh, navel gazing, their erudition, yeah. yeah, right. Sitting there illuminating manuscripts, but yeah, all of a sudden you could have the, you could have the mechanism, you could have the, um, the the beautiful, uh, the beautiful art, but the beautiful science. That's right. The the medieval marketplace then opened up the idea of, um, access to beautiful things to a middle class. Right. And now all of a sudden, you know, if you were middle class, just meaning somebody who hadn't been born into aristocracy, but now suddenly has some agency in life has money because they are part of this trade mechanism, right? Where they are, where they take some money, they buy something, they trade it to someone else. And pretty soon they've doubled their money. And, and, and they're, if you're engaged in the trade of exotic spice or of, uh, of fantastical materials, right? You want to have be part of that, have uh, have some ownership in it yourself. So, so you see this this burgeoning idea of disposable income, luxury goods, which hadn't hadn't previously existed. So, as markets expanded, the the uh, the variety of risks expanded, and insurance started to be. A um, 
started to be a separate financial service. And and this era in medieval northern uh, Italy is where banks as businesses started rather than money that was being sort of uh, invested and shared um, profits being shared among people that were invested in, in certain enterprises. Uh, the, the rules about usury started to change and formal banking became a um, banking where money was being loaned at interest. It occurs to me you need an educated middle class for some of these institutions to form because you can't have insurance without somebody doing some kind of math, like whatever the early equivalent of actuarial tables is. Like that business is only a success if somebody can figure out how to make the numbers work. Right. And so, you know, the the beginning of a of a self-educated but now with disposable income middle class makes that possible. Before, you know, maybe the priests knew how to could have made the numbers work, but they weren't going to run an insurance agency. Right, and they wouldn't have uh they wouldn't have had the the interest or you know, they would it they're no pun intended. Right. There, there does at a certain point need to be enough of a market that there that there's this extra money, yeah, um, and that there, and most insurance companies were initially syndicates because there and, and banks were too because there wasn't any one place where there was that much money that they could survive a, um, you know, one claim one massive claim, um, and so. Insurance companies were things that you could invest in as a as a wealthy person. It's parallel. Everybody chips in, and 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 so it's a way, and very much like banking, it's a way that you take your music, your money, and get a return on it. Um, I like how the rich have realized, you know, this is very precarious. We only get this status by let's look after each other. Uh-huh. Like, well, you know, it's in my interest for Hugo here not to lose his ships as well. Um, he'll look after mine. The real enemy is the poor. And that kind I mean, the idea of banks as a syndicate, you're, 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 it's essentially an insurance company, right? You're, you're putting money, you're, you're loaning money to somebody and you hope they don't, their ship doesn't sink. You hope they don't fail. So they're two sides of the same impulse. But as trade expanded to become, uh, in some ways, like the, the major human enterprise, um, as the, the, Renaissance progressed into in the Enlightenment. Um, we, cities were formed no longer around sort of subsistence trade or, or just you know mercantile or I'm sorry, like the basic level of like I have this can a market square. direct trade right yeah. to being almost entirely a, a, a capitalist a capitalist marketplace where people, where really it, you're trading money back and forth. You're trading the money. actual transactions are happening on some plantation or dock far away. Suddenly the need for insurance really expands. And, a and, a a major part of this was, um, it was concomitant with the slave trade. Oh, the, interesting. You know, the, the risk of the slave trade to the, to the capitalists, um, is, is it because 
a human the the lifetime labor of a human being is such an extraordinary asset, or is it because of the width of the ocean now involved, or both? Well, right, and the and just the attrition of carrying live humans. Uh, I guess like that's true. You're gonna some are gonna die, and they could all die. Um, and I like how the real problem with that is how do we insure it? How do we insure oh, it? That's awful. And so, um, so one of the most famous insurance companies, and we'll get to in a second that it isn't actually really a company, but Lloyd's of London began at a coffee shop in London in the mid 1600s. Um, and it was, the coffee shop was called Lloyd's and a guy named Lloyd started this place. And the, <laughs> Hey, I'm Lloyd. Uh, do you want a muffin <laughs> with that? And so, uh, it became a place. It was kind of there located in the city of London, the old city. Mm-hmm. It became a place where, where, Ship captains and shipping uh, interests, you know, just guys in waistcoats, went for coffee. And in the process of standing around, there was a lot of talk about shipping. And then there, and then people started to come there with shipping news. And people started bringing their laptops. And Lloyd erected a podium so the guys could stand up and talk about what was what was new, new and uh, and exciting in the shipping business. So he could have had po- he could have had poetry slam night, but instead, instead it became like his little shipping cafe. And so the um, so it became a place where because shipping was still sort of the most dangerous. Uh, the most de- dangerous component of global trade. It was still. It's the weather. It's right. If you if you send a covered wagon out with some sorghum and it goes awry, you can kind of trace it, or you can at least you know have a guess of where what the last tavern was that the that the caravan passed by. But a ship, when as soon as it leaves port, it's gone, baby. It's gone until you until not until it reaches its destination, but until it returns to uh, yeah. the London dockside and reports that that it made its transit to the Ivory Coast and then to Jamaica and then to Florida and then back. I think it's a common element in folk tales of the time. I think the Charles Perrault Beauty and the Beast has something where it's not like the Disney one where the dad's a crackpot inventor. He's like a He's a middle-class shipping magnet with three beautiful daughters, but then something goes wrong. Like that's the twist of fate in a lot of folk tales of the period is the ships sink. Um, and, and it gives you a twist at the end. I think in, maybe in the original Beauty and the Beast, the ships show up and then never, it's, uh, they all live happily ever oh, after. Oh, they didn't sink all along. It's a way to introduce drama because I think there probably was a lot of drama for people biting their nails and standing at the dock. Don't the king and queen in the movie Frozen die in a shipwreck? That's I mean, there's true. a lot of dying in shipwrecks. Or the other, the fan theory is that they become the parents in Tarzan. They wash ashore in Africa. Oh. And actually have a separate baby who is raised by apes. How clever. That is disproven by Frozen 2. <laughs> Let me keep up with the Disney conspiracy theories for you. Well, uh, so uh, along the way, Lloyd realized that uh, that his real business was in facilitating shipping insurance. And so the the cafe morphed into, a, into an office. But it was um, – Lloyd's is not actually an insurance company. Lloyd's is still a syndicate. Uh, it's a marketplace where they're just matchmaking. Where they're matchmaking, it's like where, Uber. Where money money comes into Lloyd's, and there's a kind of, you know, a room where it's 
it's offered like here is um you know, here's this giant risk. Here's the Exxon Valdez. Who wants to offer a policy? Yeah, what are the terms? Who wants to jump in on this? And um, and I, I think as, as the as the insurance business grew, some private insurance companies started to have resources that were greater than the sort of the members of the syndicate. And Lloyd started to recognize they were losing out on business opportunities. And so, you know, dramatically kind of expanded the, the list of uh, – and the, and the wealth base of the people that were part of the Lloyd syndicate. And, you know, it's obviously one of the largest insurers, but it's really a place of, a place of insurance uh, rather than a – Rather than like State Farm, for instance, and they've gotten pretty far on their name, Lloyd's of London. It's, it's classy. Nice. It's alliterative. It's like Ken Jennings. It doesn't have farm in the name, which yeah. I think is a problem with a lot of insurance companies right. today. State Farm. Do you really what want a far- do you really want a farmer insuring your car? So, Ken, two days ago, if you recall, I told a story uh, as part of this uh, promotion for Meh dot com. Oh, you're saying the H now. Meh. No, I'm saying meh. It was two syllables the, just now. The proper way of saying meh. I, I, somehow you you managed to put like a little A-E uh, uh, encyclopedia into it. A little digraph. Meh. Meh. <laughs> it's the but Scandinavian it's deal site. Meh, this, uh, this site that has a styrofoam head of you back in there uh, on the top shelf of some archive. And because of that, they can force me to do their will. But they are a daily deal site, and they have uh, they put together this promotion where I told a story two days ago, and if people love that story, which I th- I'm sure everybody did, you can go buy a thing on Meh, uh, buy one of their daily deals, in, uh, insert the code JOHN, and it will tally it. You'll get $5 off the purchase, but it will also tally it as a vote for my story. Today, you're going to tell a story. If people prefer it, not if they like it, but if they prefer it to my story, which is a high bar, they're going to put in Ken in the in the uh, promo code. Coupon code thing. And then you'll still get the same $5 off, but it will tally as a vote for Ken. And at the end of the month, uh, we'll compare whose story got more votes in the form of meh purchases. And then we'll have a rematch. And then for the following month, we'll have a rematch. And this will be to decide not who is your favorite host. Unless your favorite host is me, but who is who told the best story? Please vote your conscience, unless you're a John voter, and they probably don't have a lot of disposable income from me anyway. So that's med.com slash omnibus, and then enter our names. Okay, Ken, go. You told a story from your childhood about uh, you know the young John Roderick emerging, and it's amusement park related. And that reminded me of something that happened to me when I was uh, three or four, four years old. Wow. My dad was about to graduate from law school, and we had been pretty poor in law school. I mean, not actual American poverty, but te- the temporary poverty of grad students. All, all, of, all four of you were splitting a box of macaroni and cheese. It was four of us. My, my brother had, uh, had just been born uh, a year or so ago, and you know, my mom was making do with a $12 grocery budget every week, which was rough even in 1977, 78. And uh, that was $24 in today's dollars. (laughs) My great grandma was selling, uh, sending us money every week so she could buy a bunch of bananas. We got banana every money, banana money every week Mm -hmm. from great grandma. And my parents said that uh, we were finally going to, we'd been scrimping and saving. We were finally going to buy something very exciting for the whole family to celebrate dad graduating from law school. 
and I knew what it was. I, in my mind's eye, I knew what this special treat was going to be. And so I, I had my heart set on this. And my, my mom and dad gathered us together and said, all right, here's the family surprise. We, after dad's law school graduation, are going to go as a family to Disneyland. Yay! And I just, my face fell and a little tear rolled down my pudgy four-year-old Ken cheek because that was, and my parents were like, what's the matter? And I was so sure of what the surprise was going to be. I was so sure I was finally going to get a copy of the game Boggle, <laughs> which I had, which I had really wanted for a long time. <laughs> so four-year-old me was just despondent that we were going to have to go to Disneyland instead of getting Boggle. Now, Disneyland turned out to be fun, but sure. that's pretty on brand for me. Is this an ad for Boggle or for Med.com? Well, if Med.com sells Boggle, you can really kill two birds with one stone. So you'd seen Boggle on television and you were like, sure, who this, hasn't? Is, this is the game who for me. Who hasn't seen those glamorous ads <laughs> for the board game Boggle or more, uh, <laughs> more ambitiously, Big Boggle? So anyway, Ken has told a story that tries to tug at your heartstrings with his uh, with his not just his youthful poverty, but also Mo- the mawkish sentiment. This charming story about what a little baby nerd he was. Don't fall for it. <laughs> so vote for my story at mad.com slash omnibus by putting in your putting in my name when you buy your buy your super cool item. No, no, no. Go to mad.com slash omnibus and type Ken in memory of how much you enjoyed my story. One of the things that made um, that made Lloyd's of London's reputation was uh, after the San Francisco earthquake huh. here, here in the U.S. Uh, because San Francisco, you know, the earthquake destroyed a lot of San Francisco. But, Seems like that would be very bad for there. Well, really, it was eighty percent of the damage of the San Francisco earthquake was the fires, and so in the aftermath of the insurance or i'm sorry in the aftermath of the destruction of the earthquake and the fires a lot of insurance companies tried to renege on fulfilling their policy because if you had earthquake insurance but your house burned down the insurance company could say well it was it wasn't an earthquake that destroyed your house it was a fire <laughs> and vice versa asterisk right? If you had fire insurance, it was like, well, wasn't it really an earthquake? Luckily, insurance companies never look for a way to get out of stuff to, like right. that today. But Lloyd's, uh, crucially, in that moment, uh, under the leadership of one of their kind of like head underwriters, a man by the name of Cuthbert, Cuthbert Heath. Wow. There's a lot of thuz That's in there. That's hard to say. Cuthbert Heath. No, you Come just said Cuthbert. Cut, well, it is Cuthbert. I'm Cuthbert. Sorry. Cuthbert Heath. Cuthbert is like the umbilical cord. Right. No, Cuthbert, Cuthbert Heath. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to hear you try to say Cuthbert Heath Cuthbert somewhere. Heath. Cuthbert Heath. Cuthbert Heath. Cuthbert Heath. Cuthbert Heath. Uh, a speech impediment. Said to Lloyd's that we are going to honor our, um, we're going to honor our insurance policies. Or they, he went to San Francisco and said, we're going to, we're going to honor our policies uh, regardless of you know what the what loophole it is that we could use to get out of of paying this off, and in doing so, you know, almost I think bankrupt the syndicate, but also made the name of Lloyd's that this was a company you could trust. These guys are the unimpeachable ones. That's right. They are going. Do you think to, that's what Cuthbert Heath had in mind? It is. He he was like, this is our chance to be. It was a branding decision more than anything else? It was. I mean, I think he probably had some, uh, he probably had a pretty starched collar. 
just by his name and <laughs> and believed that there was a that that there was honor in this. And what was his name again? Cuthbert Heath. Ah, there you go. <laughs> um but also in the aftermath, uh there was an awful lot of um there was an awful lot of work done to make sure that policies included fire and earthquake. I mean, it's, I bet there was a lot of fraud too. Like a lot of people after the San Francisco earthquake, a lot of people are like, well, that's where the marble fireplace was. Right. And all uh, of mom's <laughs> China was broken in the earthquake. Uh, the problem with uh, the problems that arose in insurance later that we, that we, I think see quite often now are some of the same ones that arose in banking and in particular in a, in a, um, in a, a scheme that's sort of, I guess, described as reinsurance, which is that insurance companies, once they, once they take on all the liability risk of having insured all these people want to spread that risk around themselves. Who insures the insurance agent? That's right. And so insurance companies started to buy insurance in one another's risk. And this is a, a big mega syndicate, basically. Yeah, this is a good idea until you start to get into a, a thing that we saw also in the mortgage crisis, which is that... Uh, if one person is insuring wrong, right, insurers it can collapse the whole industry. Are insuring insurance on the uh, on the strength of their insurance, and you get a kind of uh, a risk of spiral loss, insurception, where where insurance agencies don't know how at risk they are, how many of their policies are predicated on other policies, and we we saw this this first kind of became a major issue when the do you remember the um the Piper Alpha explosion there was a a North no. Sea oil rig in the in the late 80s that uh, that blew up in the North Sea caught on fire and big explosion and it was a it was a massive loss but it be it uh it spiraled out of control within the insurance industry because there had been so much of this sort of buying and rebuying of of risk that it turned out it it echoed throughout the whole insurance agency and, and threatened to um, threatened to be like a a market destroyer. Yeah. And then later in the nineties, and this was a thing, and this may end up being an omnibus episode. The um, the fallout from the kind of final acknowledgement that asbestos had be was a was a, a instigator of disease. So all these health claims were actually valid in one fell swoop. Right a after years and years of companies saying, "Well, we don't know if asbestos or what." You know, Steve McQueen might have died from too many cigarettes. Um, it ended up that uh, there was a kind of you know a long tail of all these worker compensation uh, contracts and policies that had been issued over the course of, I mean, decades and decades, all coming home to roost at once. And it, uh, it was another example of where reinsurance and the spiral losses 
you know, kind of threatened to derail the the insurance industry as a as like a megalithic kind of bank. But today, governments just take it on the chin and yeah, and bail out the re the insurers and the reinsurers. Yeah, that's right. And uh, like all of these things, uh, these major insurance companies are too big to fail because if they did, it would betray the sham architecture at the heart of all global capitalism and nobody nobody wants to open that door and of the idea of insurance in, in particular right like what they're selling you is peace of mind and yeah. as soon as it's clear that no uh, something went wrong and a hundred thousand people did not get their peace of mind who's going to buy that product yeah right uh, who's going to and then who's going to rebuy it I mean, as soon as we went off of the gold standard and money became um, just a completely fictional sort of um, concept, right? As as soon as money became fake. Um, Math was a mistake. Then basically. insurance became fake. <laughs> like it's all... It's all just a birthday cake. Yeah, math was a mistake. Yeah. As, as long as you can see the stuff being traded and stroke your chin and say, deal, the second you've got a bust out equations, that's when you can really start ruining a system. Well, you know, if you're taking 5% of somebody's grain shipment in order to offset the risk of having paid for their, uh, paid for their, you know, barrel of, of lime juice to keep them from getting scurvy, I can kind of see like, yeah, that seems to be working. But if you are taking 5% of a transaction where someone took 5% of a transaction of someone else's 5% of a transaction <laughs> and it's 5% of transactions all the way down, you do get into a, well, into the world we're living in now where money is being concentrated in, in incredible amounts in tiny little small quadrants where, where you look at the people involved and go, what do you do? What do you do for a living? I hope you work. Do you work a hundred thousand times harder than your employees? I hope so, because that's what you've got. What they're doing is sitting on a sitting on an apple crate uh, across the Ponte Vecchio, thumbing their nose at Pope Gregory Nine, and probably deciding to run for president. And that concludes Genoan Insurance, entry number five two two dot mt zero six three four, certificate number four six five nine eight. In the omnibus. Uh, future links, we hope that social media does not exist in your lifetime, but uh, it sure did in ours, and you can find the records of that in, I'm sure, the university-sized archives that exist of Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. We were at Omnibus Project, and individually at Ken Jennings, and at John Roderick. Uh, our listeners were the Futurelings on Facebook, and also on Discord and Reddit, uh, we received all manner of delightful objects uh, through our mailing address at P.O. Box 55744, Shoreline, Washington, 98155. For example, John, I just discovered that Krista Dahlstrom, whose who's streaking entry we added to the Omnibus last week, discovered a collection of depressing motel and motor lodge postcards in her, what, her parents' Minnesota closet. Oh, no, it's her, it's her own as a kid from uh, from mid-century American road trips. And so she sent us the most depressing motel postcards she could find. And uh, they're really fantastic. 
uh, this is our this is our benefactor, and she sent this before we did that episode. We just didn't find it. Is that right? Yeah, I didn't realize. I pulled these out, and we're like, oh, hey, that's the same number as the uh, woman who wanted Aww. us to talk about streaking. How awesome. So, so apparently something about staying in these depressing motels as a child made her very interested in streaking. We also received um, two pads of Playboy magazine office desk notes. Cool. Uh, with the monogram of someone who never ended up working for the company. What's so. all that stuff written on them? Oh, this is the first page is just a note explaining oh. the two blank Here, let me pages. See those. Don't me. say th- don't say the name of the would-be employee. I don't want to get sued. We don't have insurance. Oh, but so this person did not um, was actually end up never working in at fact, Playboy. Never in fact hired for the magazine. Is but, this but they had already ordered the pads. Is this, oh, is this someone we know? Is this our correspondent? No, it's another employee who sent us these. But, uh, you know, luckily the would-be employee's name is John. So you can just scratch out his surname and these can be your right your own Playboy pads. I wonder, I wonder how to do that and make it not look dumb. But I, I'm, it's something I'm willing to try. Somebody crocheted us baby Yodas. And I'm not sure who. I can't find the note. If you crocheted us the baby Yodas, though, thank you. These They're are beautiful. And yeah, John's daughter has already has already absconded with one of them. Uh, if you would like to send uh, virtual communication, just to say hi, you can do that at theomnibusproject at gmail.com. If you would like to support the show with uh, legal tender with the, the illusion that is money, the modern mm-hmm, capitalist construct, mm-hmm. instead of instead of by crocheting baby Yodas, please get that money to us before our modern banking system collapses. Uh, you can support the show at patreon.com slash omnibus project and get a variety of wonderful rewards, including at the $5 level, a free monthly episode in which we, uh, in which we add new updates and corrections to past omnibus entries. Wouldn't that be neat? It's really, they're, they're fun. They are. We like those because we don't have to do as much research. That's nice. Or at least, I mean, we have to do research that we just don't have to think up the original idea. We just have to research our own mail. <laughs> we have to do a groundbreaking <laughs> investigation of our own inbox. Futurelings, from our vantage point in your distant past, we have no idea how long our civilization survived. It almost certainly came to a uh, cataclysmic end as the result of people not being adequately insured. Um, Nobody had meteor insurance. Someone named someone else's someone else because they were listed on a Playboy magazine pad and that person sued and uh, the people that they sued were not sufficiently insured and their bankruptcies resounded, reverberated throughout their own culture and pretty soon it was a massive insurance and banking collapse Fires, people running in the streets, dogs and cats. What started the fires? Sleeping together. Um, hysteria. Hysteria is what starts fires. When you're really hysterical, do you start fires? That's, Absolutely. That's, that's a real peek inside your troubled <laughs> troubled mind. <laughs> I ain't no fire starter. I'm fierce. <laughs> uh, we hope and pray that this catastrophe never comes because it sounds terrible. But if the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may have been our final word. It sounds terrible. <laughs> like many catastrophes, it sounds terrible. This one does not sound good at all. <laughs> uh, but if Providence allows, and by Providence I mean the Providence Insurance Company, <laughs> Providence Heart and Farm Insurance Company of Providence, Rhode Island, uh, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omni.